0: Well, I'll tell you before I read a second Psalm, uh, this past week I was um, uh, Thursdays. I go down to a guy's house, I take care of his house and my uncle's house, which is right next door. And I was the day before ordered shell for my driveway. And so when I pulled up, there's this guy, and he's uh, at the guy's house. And uh, I said, What are you doing? He says, Well, I'm ordering shell for my driveway. And, uh, I said, oh, gee, I just ordered some through somebody else. And somehow it came out that the, the driver is a Christian. So we're talking and uh, eventually the guy that owns the house said to him, oh, Charlie's a preacher. And, um, uh, he said, really? He said, you know, I want to tell you how I met the Lord. He said, I didn't know him. I didn't have any relationship at all with Jesus Christ. And, um, I had a, a son that was, uh, had something wrong with him where he had to have an incision here and something inserted into his body. And, uh uh it was life-threatening and they didn't even know that if he would live and uh his father said to him well have you tried church and uh he said no I never have and so he went to a church that I'm not even familiar with the assembly of God down in uh, Venice he went down there and uh he said the guy was preaching he stopped right in the middle of the sermon walked over and prayed for the child and uh uh went back and finished his sermon and um the next day he got up, and his son was crawling around on the floor, and that thing had fallen out and he said that that hole the incision where this thing was inserted was actually healed over that day and he said, "I gave my life to the Lord right then and there and i'm not one to to believe in in uh, stories about uh, uh, you know miracle healings that often, but this guy had no reason to lie about what he was saying it was it, it was a man that didn't know the Lord, his son was healed, and ever since then he is you know been a follower of Jesus Christ and so uh, sometimes we tend to diminish the work of the Holy Spirit and as I said I don't believe in faith healers if somebody says they're a faith healer I got nothing to do with them but I do believe in faith healing and when I heard that story this week it just touched me and it made me think that uh, uh, I've been negligent in my prayers even for Sergio here who I know has got problems and uh, we can rely on the Lord and it's His divine will. If he wants to heal us, that's his choice. We have right in the New Testament many people that were not healed, uh, such as uh, Paul leaving a person named uh, Trophimus sick in Miletus. Paul didn't heal him. If faith healing was the way people claim in this world right now, he would have just gone and healed Trophimus on the way out of there. But he understood that God is sovereign. So my prayer and petition to the Lord is for Sergio, and I would pray that he would have the same healing as uh, this boy did something so miraculous that only the Lord can get the glory for it so let's keep that in prayer throughout the week and uh, for the other things that we have and um, I'll read a quick psalm and uh, then we'll go ahead and get started I think I'm going to read the 147th psalm yes and uh, then we'll say a quick sermon and uh, with me there's no such thing as a quick sermon I understand that but I mean I'll try to get through it quickly and uh, then we'll be done all right 147th psalm praise the lord for it is good to sing praises to our god for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful the lord builds up jerusalem he gathers together the outcasts of israel he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds he counts the number of the stars he calls them all by name great is our lord and mighty in power his understanding is infinite the lord lifts up the humble he casts the wicked down to the ground sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp to our God who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. He does not delight in the strength of horses. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children within you. He makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His words run very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts out his hail like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob his statutes, and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Today's sermon is on the Nephilim in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and it is four verses. They have led to a ton, a ton of anger and bitterness between the opposing views of these particular Verses, And unless you're aware of what all the hubbub is about in these verses, you might wonder, well, why are you even worrying about that? It may seem a little bit intriguing, but these verses are a little bit difficult to follow. Let's read them first, and then we're gonna analyze these four verses. Here they are. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days will be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days. The word giants is the word Nephilim. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Today, we're going to look at the two most prevalent views of these particular verses and which one is right and why. And when I do this, I don't want to sound condescending and I don't want to personally malign another Christian. His name is Chuck Missler. Um, But he is the main proponent of the opposing view. And I actually read a lot of his articles. I've read him over the years. But in this particular issue, I believe he is completely wrong. But what I'm gonna do is stick to his analysis of these views because he is the most vocal proponent of them. And also, as I say time after time when I speak, please don't just believe me because I'm saying it. And don't believe Chuck Missler without uh, checking what he says either. The Bible has truth in it and there is only one truth and that is God revealing himself to us. In the end, our opinions simply don't matter. What God is trying to tell us is what matters. The question is, what is the Bible about? There's no single answer to that question. The Bible tells us of the mind of God. It tells us of the work and the person of Jesus Christ. It tells us of the state of man. It shows us the way of salvation and it shows us the path to destruction. It details all kinds of things, one of them being the redemption of mankind. The Bible is not about angels. Angels are mentioned in the Bible, but they are a secondary subject area. Rather, they come in as participants in the overall drama of the Bible. The Bible isn't about Babylon. Again, Babylon is mentioned. It's a very important concept in the Bible, but it is not about Babylon. In other words, when we're reading the Bible, we need to take our major subject areas and keep them in the proper place and our minor subject areas and keep them in the proper place. And we don't wanna get them out of sync. One major subject area, the redemption of man, is often, unfortunately, inappropriately mixed with another minor subject area, which comes from these four first verses of Genesis 6. And because of this, very, very strange concepts are derived from these four verses. So we wanna be very careful about how we evaluate them and keep everything in the context which was intended by God. Our text verse for today is 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. Last week it was 2 Corinthians 6, 16. So you can see these particular verses that I'm giving as text verses really fit in with Genesis 5 and 6. Here's what it says. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness and what accord has Christ with Belial or what part has A believer with an unbeliever. So may God speak to us through His Word today, and may His glorious name ever be praised. Our first major area of thought today is the sons of God and the daughters of men. These are verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Before we start looking through today's verses, because they're so controversial, we would be showing immense wisdom by going back and reviewing the previous five chapters to look for the progression of things. If we don't, we are going to violate the third, fourth, and fifth of our top five Bible interpretation rules. Context, context, and context. Chapter 1 gives us an overall view of the six days of creation. On the sixth day, man is created, at which time God proclaimed everything very good, or as he says in Hebrew, tov meod. Let's note right here that angels are not mentioned in this creation account at all. The focus is on God, the visible creation, and man. After noting that God's rest is established on the seventh day of creation, chapter two becomes a detailed insert into that sixth day of creation. The creation of man, the Garden of Eden, the creation of woman, and various other details are given in chapter two. As with chapter one, man and God are the focus of these chapters. Actually, I should say God and man, but it's from man's perspective. Chapter three details the temptation and the fall of man, the curse of the serpent, the sentencing of the man and the woman, and man's exile from Eden, which is all a very ghastly business. But once again, man is the focus of this particular account and his relationship with God. Then we get into chapter four which provides insights into the birth of cain and then abel and the murder of abel and immediately after that account it jumps directly into the account of cain and his lineage deriving from adam through cain down to the eighth man from adam during this account there is one particular name which seems to appear for almost no reason at all and we were talking about this in a bible study a week and a half ago it was the day uh, right after we had done the, the previous week's sermon. And I said, I mentioned this person's name three times at least in order for you to remember it. And one of the guys, uh, it was Jim. You said, remember that what you said? You said, well, I don't remember you saying that three times. I watched the sermon yesterday. He got it uploaded. I mentioned it eight times. That's how important uh, this name is, okay? Anyway, here's what it says in verse 22. Abruptly and without explanation, it says this and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. At the end of the Cain account, it suddenly shifts again. And Adam knew his wife again, it says, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. All of this details the history of man on earth and it is the focus of what we've read. All of it included types and pictures of the coming Christ. Almost every verse that I've read at one point or another, I've said, see how this points to Jesus Christ. Chapter five then gives the record of the first 10 people in Jesus' lineage from Adam down through Seth and all the way to Noah. And this is about the history of man on earth, and it is being set in direct contrast to the preceding chapter, which is the line of Cain. So you have the line of Cain, then you've got the line of Seth or coming from Adam through Seth and then down to Noah. These records, these genealogies and these generations have been very carefully recorded for us. And then they've been very strategically placed in the Bible. And we've evaluated them in these past months and have been shown that direct contrast between the two groups of people. Any attempt then to insert something beyond what we have evaluated into chapter six would be to completely misuse the Bible. The Bible so far is progressively revealing God's workings in and through his creation for the good of man and for the redemption of mankind. And as we saw in chapter five, the gospel is actually recorded in the names of those 10 people from Adam down to Noah. We've seen the doctrine of divine election begin in the Bible where God chooses the second of something over the first of something. And this pattern, as I said last week, will continue all the way through the Bible, even to the very last pages, but it will become as clear as crystal before we leave the book of Genesis. And we've also been introduced into the concept of acceptance by God being based on faith and not on works. We've also seen God's mode of salvation, which is it being initiated by him and it being completed by him. And everything in between is a gift from him. All of these concepts and many more we've pulled out of the first five chapters of the books of Genesis. Now we go to chapter six, verses one and two. It says, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. and." They took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. As I said now, the only way to properly analyze these two verses is to look to the preceding verses. If we attempt to insert anything else except what has been presented by God and very detailingly at that, then the rest of the Bible, and I mean this sincerely, the rest of the Bible will be up to our own whims and our own desires. We have departed from the presence of the Lord and we have gone into the land of Nod, wandering aimlessly with a, in a book without any solid support and without any solid foundation. As time progressed, and as we've seen in chapters 4 and 5, men began to multiply on the face of the earth. And the only names recorded so far are the only ones that are relevant to the big picture. There were many, many more. Remember what each account said in Genesis chapter 5 and this person had sons and daughters. And then we get the next name, and this person had sons and daughters. Based on the number of the years recorded and the age to which these people lived, there could have been hundreds of millions or even billions of people. And yet only 27 are mentioned in the first five chapters of the Bible. In what is also obvious and in a repetition of these verses, it says, and daughters were born to them. Yep, men and women being born living, marrying, and they're dying. All things that continue on even to this day. None of verse one that I've read has brought any difficulty to scholars of the Bible, but all of a sudden we enter verse two and the overexcited mind and unclear thinking of sensationalism steps in to divide the sea of reason. On the right, we have the waters of drawing right out of the context to interpret the Bible. And on the left, we have the sea of insertion into the deep waters of the extraordinary. We've come to this dividing chasm and we have to decide which body of water are we going to divide into. Let me read you verse two again. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now we've arrived, and I mean this sincerely, chapter six, verses two. We've arrived and we need to decide. Right now is the time. How we perceive the rest of the Bible concerning the redemption of man, prophecy, the classes of the species that God has made, and whether the Bible stands alone or not, and a host of other issues revolves around four words in that verse, the sons of God. Remember what I said, insert anything beyond what is given in the first five chapters and you have completely misused the Bible. The Bible is God progressively revealing himself in his workings, through his creation, for the good of man, and towards the redemption of mankind. The sons of God then must, by default, have been mentioned right here in the preceding five chapters, or explained in detail in these verses, or we are inserting presuppositions and we are not drawing out conclusions. Who are the sons of God? Now, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna stop pursuing the correct answer right now, and I'm gonna go to a completely different view than the right one, and then I'm gonna refute what was presented. And in my own self, I don't believe this is necessary based on the idea of full and progressive revelation of God. But if you knew how many people cling to the wrong idea of what the term the sons of God are, I think you'd agree that we need to pursue this. And when you hear this guy's analysis, I think you'll see the contrast between the two. As I said, probably the most noted vocal opponent of the wrong view is Chuck Missler. His ministry is known as Koinonia House, and here is what he says about this term. The term translated the sons of God is, in the Hebrew, bene ha elohim, or the sons of Elohim, which is a term consistently used in the Old Testament for angels. And it is never used of believers in the Old Testament. It was so understood by ancient rabbinical sources, by the Septuagint translators in the uh, 3rd century before Christ, and by the early church fathers. Attempts to apply this term to godly leadership is without scriptural foundation. Okay, godly leadership would be In other words, saying that it is the line of Seth from Adam. His footnote in this particular article cites Job 1.6, Job 2.1, and Job 38.7. And then, speaking of angels, he says, speaking of in his footnote, where they are in existence before the creation of the earth, okay? And he also says in his footnotes, Jesus also implies the same in Luke 20.36, Now, if you were to read his particular article, this commentary and that footnote, and thought it over, you might be convinced that Genesis 6 must be talking about angels. I mean, the term, as he says, is consistently used in the Old Testament for angels. It must be that then, right? This is unfortunately rather dishonest, and particularly when one goes to the footnote. There he cites the New Testament Greek but only when it fits his purpose what he fails to note is that the New Testament he cites Luke uh, Jesus speaking in Luke 20:36 but the New Testament uses the same term the sons of God four more times and it is always referring to faithful believers even in Jesus own words blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God throw in the term children of God and you have 10 more times. If you throw in variations of children of God, you have more and more times. And even the very verse which Mr. Missler cites in the New Testament does not agree at all with his own presentation. He cited Luke 20 36. We're going to read it together. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection his inclusion of this verse has two errors first it never says that we will be angels it says we will be equal to the angels but then he explains exactly what this means they won't marry and they can't die anymore being like angels simply means that we won't marry and we will be what's called eternal having a beginning but no ending And secondly, being a son of God from a human perspective, according to Jesus' own words, means that we are sons of the resurrection. This means that any human being ever in the history of humanity who was saved and is resurrected is by default a son of God, just as Paul and John speak of in their own letters. Missler has made what we call a category mistake by equating the sons of God with angels in his passage from Luke. And going back to Genesis 6, I said earlier that we should analyze this based on what has already been presented, unless something new is fully explained when it's presented. The term sons of God is given only three other times in the entire Old Testament, and Mislearn cited all of them. Job 1.6, Job 2.1, and Job 38.7. And when you read that passage in Job, you can easily infer that it's angels. That's no, I have no problem at all with that. Missler says, though, that the sons of God is a term consistently used in the Old Testament for angels, but it's really only mentioned in that one other context, Job. So this is sly because what he's done is he's taken one context, that of Job, and he's elevated it above another context, that of Genesis. But Job comes after Genesis, it doesn't come before it. If you insert it before it, then you're not working with progressive revelation. So what he's done is very sly in this particular commentary. And we all know that one word can have a zillion meanings, particularly in Hebrew and Greek. And translation must always, it must always be based on the context in which the word fits. There is no way that you can get angels out of the context of Genesis one through Genesis five. And finally, we need to go to Deuteronomy 32, verse eight, which Mr. Missler speaks of. He cited the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint. It says there, when the Most High divided the inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. The term Israel, the children of Israel, can be translated, or is translated differently in different uh, texts of the Old Testament. Now, when I teach a Bible class, I point out the same things time and time again, and one of them is to skip over commentaries. Or if you read them, take them with a complete grain of salt. And the reason why is because we don't establish our doctrine based on what other people say or on their commentaries. We base it on what the Bible says but another thing that I tell them to do is to always check what? What do I ask you to always read when you're reading your Bible? The what? The footnotes. Absolutely. The reason why is because footnotes are not commentaries, but they provide the most valuable insights into a variety of things. In the case of Deuteronomy 32.8, which he is using to support his idea, it says angels of God instead of children of israel in one translation but some others say sons of god in other words you have greek translations of the old testament you've got the hebrew of the old testament and you've even got latin versions and all of them say something different and this is a really big mess what what does that mean well one thing is for certain that we can deduce from that that the term the sons of israel was believed by someone to mean the same thing as the sons of god And it's most likely that others took the term the sons of God to mean angels of God. So the question is, which is it? When you're looking at a poem like Deuteronomy 32, which is the entire chapter is a poem, you can't take a single verse and come to a conclusion, but you gotta look at the entire thing. And it's apparent that it is speaking in Deuteronomy 32 about men, not about angels. And in fact, in verse three, when speaking to Israel, it says, Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? So even as you can see right here in Deuteronomy, the concept of the father-son relationship is based on God's people whom he has sovereignly chosen and redeemed. These are the sons of God, just as they are throughout the entire New Testament without any exception. Misler's done a great deal of typing to convince people of his position but none of what he says makes any sense based on the overall premise of the Bible. In one of his papers, here's what he says. It should also be pointed out that the most conservative Bible scholars accept the angel view. Among those supporting the angel view are, and then he cites a bunch of people who agree with him. Does anybody know what's the matter with that? Right, Jim got it. That is the fallacy of ad populum. In other words, just because someone or someone very notable, or a whole bunch of people believe something, it doesn't mean it's right. It just means that there are a lot of people, including some famous people, that are wrong. We do not base truth on polls. In fact, Mr. Missler makes so many fallacies in his argument saying that these are angels, and if you know how to detect them, that you can pare his entire argument down to a few incoherent sentences. We could go on for hours with the breakdown of his ideas, but we'd be here all night long. There are only two options to who the sons of God are based on the preceding five chapters of Genesis, either the line of Cain or the line of Seth. And the Bible has already shown us that it's the line of Seth. The main focus of chapter four is the line of Cain, but then At the very end, it moves to the line of Seth. And immediately it says right there at the end of 4 in the line of Seth, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And it should be painfully clear that calling on the name of the Lord is being equated with the line of Seth in contrast to the line of Cain. So let's finish this verse before we move on. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. The sons of God, meaning the line of Seth, saw the daughters of men. We are one species with two genders. Genesis has already taught us that. The problem isn't that angels are intermarrying with humans. The problem is that the sons of God are marrying with women based on their beauty, regardless of who they marry. Now let's go back to chapter four and that most peculiar verse. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. If you can reach back into your memory, the meaning of her name is loveliness. The meaning of her name explains the seemingly purposeless addition of her into that account. Out of the billions of possible people that lived on earth during those 1656 years, only 27 people were mentioned and she is given no explanation other than the meaning of her name loveliness and here we read the explanation the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they intermarried with them in chapter four we saw in the line of Cain Naamah's father was named Lamech and in chapter five in the line of Seth Methuselah's son was named Lamech both Naamah and Methuselah From these two different lines are in the eighth generation from Adam. And although the Bible does not say this, the implication is that Methuselah probably or could have named his son Lamech after the name of his father in law from the ungodly line. Throughout the Bible, the subject of inappropriate intermarrying is brought up time and time and time again. What does Abraham do for Isaac? He sends for a wife from for isaac from his kin way up in uh upper mesopotamia because he doesn't want them to marry the canaanite women and then we have esau displeases his parents because he marries the canaanite women later the israelites are forbidden from intermarrying with the canaanites and several other surrounding nations solomon intermarried with women from many nations and as it says right there in the bible that His wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to the Lord, his God. We have the great prayer of humiliation given by Nehemiah and it is based solely on the intermarrying of the God's chosen people with pagans. And as if we needed any more proof that this is what the Bible is trying to teach us, all we need to do is go to Malachi and read the reason given as explicitly as it could possibly given. Here's what it says in Malachi. Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, whom with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? In other words, the spirit is what makes us sons of God by adoption. And why one? Here's the reason. He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. This is the lesson for faithful believers of the Bible. Like bookends on the Old Testament, you got Genesis here, you've got Malachi here, and God expects people all the way through those books to remain within the godly line that he has ordained. And this applies in the New Testament as well. Right from Paul's own hand, he says it twice. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to, to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. You have to marry within the covenant of believers. And then from his hand, he writes again, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This is our text verse for today. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness and what accord has Christ with Belial or what part has a believer with an unbeliever. Our text verse here perfectly resembles what was going on in Genesis chapter six. Paul even uses exactly the same thought process here. The sons of Christ and the sons of Belial or the devil, which is the line of Cain as we see all the way through to the very end of the Bible. And that brings us up to our second major point of consideration today, which is a shorter existence. Verse three. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, and yet his days shall be 120 years. In verse three, we see this very sad commentary as if we need any others on the existence of man before the flood. Men really, really did live to great ages eight, nine hundred years old. And if you don't believe that, we've talked about this and some people I know struggle with them living to eight or nine hundred years old. But if you don't believe that, then you have no reason to believe what Isaiah writes from his own pen speaking about the millennial age which is coming when Christ returns again. It says, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. You know, we got these giant sequoias out in California, Sequoia National Forest. Live to be 3,500 years old, and that's how they, old they are now. They have no idea how long they'll continue on. They were around when Moses was receiving the law from God on Mount Sinai. And he says that people will live to be the age of a tree sometime in the future. Because man shunned God's will, he promised to cut their years approximately eightfold to only 120 years. Eventually, this was cut by another three or threefold or another third so that the psalms record that our years are 70 years or if we are exceptionally strong 80 years and nothing has changed since that was penned by moses in the 90th psalm it's the oldest psalm in the bible and he's writing that thirty-five hundred years ago saying that someday in the bible it tells us we will live as long as that psalm was written Ago, 3,500 and plus years. I just it's unbelievable to think, but yes, I do believe that's true. The reason our years were cut short though to eight seventy or eighty years is because look at what we can accomplish in wickedness in those few short years. You think of Adolf Hitler and you think of Joseph Stalin, both of them died around fifty or sixty years old. And in those few short years, the amount of wickedness that we can produce, just think about how wicked people could become when they're bent on evil and they're eight, 900 years old. Our third thought today is the Nephilim, which is verse four. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The term translated giants here is the word Nephilim and it's often simply transliterated that word. If you've ever read the NIV, instead of saying there were giants on the earth, it says there were Nephilim on the earth in those days. Nephilim, the term is used almost exclusively by people believing in angels sleeping with men. And the only reason why I can think they do that is because it just sounds cool. I I can't think of any other reason why they just don't go with the, the standard translation. But the term Nephilim is not some extra special word. It means fallen ones and if you follow the hebrew back it actually means the oranids meaning the constellation orion these people were pagan worshipers of the stars they were fallen because of that the nephilim are fallen ones and that term is explained in the bible as giants it's explained there in numbers 13 verse 33 it says the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the Nephilim or giants as it's translated. The descendants of Anak came from the giants and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so were we in their sight. We don't need to search for any other explanation of what these people were like when the Bible gives it to us. They were very large people. They were people of great stature, but people try to find other explanations for these things the description is given. We don't need to do that. And there are other accounts of very large people in the Bible who descend from other groups. And each group is given its title by the people they descended from. Here are some other groups of people that were considered giants. You have the Anakim, you've got the Imim, you've got the Samzumim, the Rephaim, and even the Plishtim, or the word we use today is Philistine. And who came from the Philistines, Goliath. We all know the story of this great man of stature. He is the same type of person. So the question is, who were these giants and where did they come from? In my own thinking, I hate to tell the sensationalists this, but it is not a very hard nut to crack. Even in modern times, we have exceptionally large people around us. Admittedly, many of them are genetic defects, but many are the result of purposeful breeding. We go back to verse six, two, and we get the answer that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of whom they chose. And things are absolutely the same now as they were back then. How many times have you heard somebody say, two good-looking people getting married, they are going to have beautiful children, or boy, are they going to have a basketball star? Why do we do that? because we know what the result of two sets of good genes is gonna produce. And we do exactly the same thing with plants, we do it with trees, and we do it with animals. If we look at the advances in DNA, they have gone back and they have identified 14 breeds of dogs that every single dog on earth comes from. And eventually you can go back to the two original dogs. But those 14 breeds we have identified through DNA. And from them, we now have over 400 breeds of dogs, and we pop out new ones every single year. We breed them into the massive, the mastiffs, which are uh, 300 plus pounds in that one breed of dog that gets seven feet tall. And then we have all the way down to the little teacup chihuahuas. You can fit them inside of a coffee cup and they weigh a couple of ounces. So it's not a hard nut to crack when we look at what's going on in the world when people are purposely breeding and when people live to be eight or nine hundred years of age they could within just a couple of generations have produced immensely large people and even now we live only to 70 years or so world records are set by our children year after year they keep breaking world records because people are being genetically engineered for physical greatness if you've seen these basketball stars they've got shoes this big and I, seriously it's a very common thing now where 30 years ago they all had regular sized feet because these people are marrying they're getting bigger and bigger the Nephilim are large because they were bred large at the expense of faith and even to this day families choose the road of success in exceptional gene development over godly husbands and godly wives this then is the explanation for these giants It is the only avenue which rightly handles those first five chapters of the Bible based on progressive revelation of what God is trying to tell us. When it says that these were mighty men of old, men of renown, it is a statement that we could use of any of our finest military people, our greatest basketball stars, or any other person that the world idolizes because of their high breeding and their superior abilities. The commentary then matches the commentary of today, a godless world which looks to the flesh rather than God for direction. Here is Missler's misguided thoughts on this particular matter. I'm going to read a paragraph of his and I'm just going to insert some thoughts as I'm reading it. The most fatal flaw in the specious Sethite view, which is the godly line of Seth, is the emergence of the Nephilim as a result of the unions. Bending the translation to giants does not resolve the difficulties. Of course it does. This is my thoughts, Chuck, because the Nephilim are described as giants. I mean, hello, the Bible does it right there. Messler continues. It is the offspring of these peculiar unions in Genesis 6:4 which seems to be cited as a primary cause for the flood. My thoughts. This is absolutely false. The Bible says exactly why the flood came about. Here's what it says. The wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his hearts was evil continually, only evil continually. Missler continues, procreation by parents of differing religious views do not produce unnatural offspring. Me, no, but selective breeding does. Missler, believers marrying unbelievers may produce monsters, whatever that means, but hardly superior superhuman or unnatural children. My thoughts, nothing. There is not a single word in the Bible that says they were either superhuman or unnatural. He simply makes these things up as he's going along. Missler, it was unnatural procreation and the resulting abnormal creatures that were designated as a principal reason for the judgment and the flood. Again, this is my thoughts. It is a complete falsity and one which fails to take into account the Nephilim after the flood. In other words, if the Nephilim appeared after the flood and destroying them was the purpose of the flood, then God failed it in his attempt. You see the logic there? It's just, it's bad handling of the Bible. Seeing as how we're looking over the issue, I'm going to give you a couple more verses from the Bible that he uses, and I'm going to show you how he misinterprets the Bible. And this is important so we can understand how to do these things. One of them is from Daniel 2, 43. It speaks about the intermingling of certain groups of people. And it is used by these people as a source text for angels marrying humans and having sex with humans. All right, here is how it is translated first from the New King James Version. The NIV, I'm gonna give you that translation as well, and they will never cite the NIV. And the reason why is because it completely blows their case. Here's what it says in the New King James Version. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, They will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Okay, it sounds kind of spooky. Something's mingling with the seed of men. But here's how the NIV translates exactly the same thing. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay So the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. If you can see the difference, it's saying we got different groups of people, maybe Muslims and Buddhists and politicians and uh, whatever, and they're trying to come to an organizational agreement and they can't do it because they have different ideas about things. And the premise is the same as us intermarrying with pagans. It's not that they're not human beings and they don't deserve Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but until they come to Jesus Christ, you have different priorities and you have different goals. And that is why these things aren't mingling together. The book of Jude has certain things that uh, Missler cites. I'm gonna read you this and I'm gonna tell you how he misuses it. Here's what Jude says. But I wanna remind you though, that you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe verse six and the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness of the great day verse seven as sodom and gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, Missler will take verse six that I read, which is speaking about the angels leaving their proper abode, and he will tie it in with verse seven, which is speaking of the sins, the sexual sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. But what he's done is he's taken two verses out of a litany of verses that are giving an example about uh, uh, mingling believers with non-believers, and instead of saying joining it with the Israelites you know being disobedient he joins it with the sexual sins this is bad handling of the bible and this is what I'm trying to tell you is that we need to make sure that when we take something we have to take it in the overall context and not pull out individual verses I could go on all day with what Missler has to say here but there is no point in it what he does is he just simply takes verses out of context and he doesn't progressively follow the bible okay so I have been flapping my gums here for about 35 or 40 minutes on this particular set of verses, only four verses, and I know that it's a little tedious and it's what most people couldn't care diddly about. The question is, how do these four verses point to Jesus? If they're being properly handled by us and we're analyzing it from the proper context, how do these four four verses point to Jesus? Well, let's remember that Jesus Christ is the God-man. He was born of a virgin. He was born of the Holy Spirit. God is the creator, and he is designated that things reproduce after their own kind. We don't have deaths because dogs don't breed with cats. We don't have mellifants because mice don't breed with elephants, and even moose don't breed with elephants. We don't have zails because zebras don't breed breed with whales this is how God created things to produce after their own kind there is one exception in the entire Bible to this and this is God being made in or man being made in God's image and then God uniting with man in the womb of Mary and producing the God man Jesus Christ this is the exception that the Bible is trying to tell us in order to redeem us out of our fallen state There is nothing mentioned in the entire Bible about angels. And in fact, the Bible supports that angels don't reproduce. The account today is given us by God because he expects us to keep ourselves pure and undefiled from marrying outside of the covenant community of believers. When men began to reproduce for the sake of breeding larger or stronger or more beautiful people, it led to wickedness, and it led to idolatry of the flesh and a rejection of God. And God wants us to remain dependent on him, not on man. He wants our devotion and our worship and not the worship of sports heroes. The incarnation of Jesus Christ was demonstrated or came about to show us the immense love of God and what he has done for us in his own son. While sports heroes die and they return to the dust, Jesus Christ remains on his throne. He's been resurrected after his cross to an indestructible and an everlasting life. This is the message of Jesus Christ and it is the love of God which is found in him. So let's be faithful to our spouses, let's marry within the covenant community of believers and let's trust that Jesus alone has something better for us at the end of our trail. I'm gonna take two minutes and explain the purpose of Jesus' coming in case somebody is listening to this video and they have never heard this. The Bible says that we have fallen, that we have fallen from God's favor because we have sinned. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sinned. But the Bible goes on to say that God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. This is the premise of the redemption of mankind. And the Bible asks us to do one simple thing if we want to be saved, and that's to call on the name of the Lord. And if we will do that, we are given and granted everlasting life, and we can live in his presence forever and ever and ever. Let me read you something I did for you. Man is multiplied on the earth, and daughters were born to them too. We look to their size and strength to evaluate their worth, and to the ladies' curvy shapes. Woohoo. We give our sons raised in the godly home to women who will give us baseball heroes. Never do their eyes to the Bible Rome. Instead in Bible quizzes, we have to hand out zeros. The boys choose any girl they like. It doesn't matter if she worships Beelzebub. As long as she can run, jump, or ride a bike, he is happy to buy her dinner, maybe an Italian sub. But the Lord isn't pleased with this type of mingling and he won't always strive with the rebellious man. Chasing after what gives physical tingling is as worthless as an empty tin can. Our days are limited to less than before because with many years comes the multiplication of sin. But even now in years 10 and three score, we can really do ourselves in. We produce giants for the courts and the field, and we look for supermodels, our children to yield. They will be mighty men and superwomen. you see. In another generation, we'll have Super Bowl heroes. Never mind their soul that lasts for eternity. Never mind their Bible scores, which are all zeros. I would suggest before you decide to give your children an unholy bride, that you would consider what displeases God and keep away from banishment to nod. Instead, be as faithful as his son was to you. He gave his life. Yes, he is faithful and true. Cling to the cross and your average wife or your bushy-bearded husband for all of your life. Handsome or beautiful or not, they reflect God's Son and are worth more than a million Super Bowl heroes. Eternity waits for you to have fun, so keep yourself from the Bible score zeros. Hallelujah and amen. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to look into your word. Thank you for showing us that we are sons of a God through adoption, and it is by faith in Jesus Christ that we are adopted. Thank you for the resurrection and the promise of eternal life in your glorious presence, all because of the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And thank you for bringing the people out here, even on a very cold day, to worship you and to serve you and to praise your glorious name. We love you and we do praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.